welcome to Tales from Corporate. This is our second episode, and it is entitled Squeaky Clean. I'm going to pivot to Maria. Hello again. This is Maria here with Elise. Welcome back, everybody. (laughs) Welcome, welcome, welcome. So squeaky clean, hmm, corporate, you usually have to keep your background, your credit, squeaky clean, just to begin to qualify for a role that you've posted for, interviewed for. Mm-hmm. Right, right. In order to get completely hired and onboarded by said corporation. <laughs> And I'm sorry, but uh, fortunately or unfortunately, for it's fortunate for the firm that they can feel like they've done all their checks and balances. But for mm, people of color and women, I think corporate tends to air extra squeaky clean, air quotes, squeaky yeah. clean on their background checks. We're going to discuss that because we're going to see if it's actually as squeaky clean as they purport or is there bias? In it. And, and, you know, we've spent decades of corporate being polite and talking about things like they're on the up and up. But after all that we've seen of 2020, the game has changed. So we're going to really examine this behavior or this, these uh, practices today. Exactly. I was going to say that I've always been fearful. Like I've literally... (laughs) I think I I actually, there's been a few years that I've paid for more than one service to monitor my credit just because I remember working at a big, 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 big bank. It was like people would get let go, you know, for any financial impropriety that may show up on said credit report. You were always in fear of that. So you took care of it. And because you had to be registered with FINRA, there were more than, you know, the SEC, you had to keep things squeaky clean. So I always... <laughs> Regular <laughs> compliance checks. Yeah. I, and then it's highly, highly regulated industry. Yeah. Yeah. Highly regulated. You can't even check your email at work and financially, if you have like Gmail or, or Yahoo or something like that, even yeah, that, it's all monitored and they have to yeah. keep the emails. Certain firms... You couldn't even have Messenger. So, like, you know, you mm-hmm. think about it work Skype for business or Teams and IMing and Slack. Mm-hmm. They don't allow that for you if you're like registered facing. It's like a big rigmarole. And, anything um, that they can't keep the the records, the receipts for anything that they can't uh, file away for seven years. People find that mind boggling, but it's quite common practice. I remember the last time I sweated bullets. And I mean, I was sweating, but I had nothing to worry about, but I'm like super paranoid sometimes. (laughs) When I got a promotion to uh, corporate banking at the big, big firm and I had to sign, like, I remember a stack of papers and I was like, I've already been working for you guys for like four years, three and a half years. What do you need me to sign now? But then it was like I had to sign paperwork because the department I was going to, I had to like sign my life away about insider trading and disclose any accounts you know, and it kind of made me go like, how is it that people get away with bad stuff? You know, like, <laughs> because you have to disclose so much. Mm-hmm. And then also I got my first, and I was proud of that, corporate credit card. 
And it had a really big limit because the department I was with was traveling. So that was the other thing. So they also needed to make sure you really had your financial house in order because you couldn't now be extended this huge credit. And that was an embarrassing thing if, you know, if you went to get the, the corporate credit card that was required by the department, you didn't qualify. So <laughs> all of those things, you know, that you know, like that's why I said I was sweating bullets, but I, I came through the other side unblemished. But I do know that it is in some ways a luxury coming through the housing crisis of 2007, 2008, all the way into 2011, 12. And then now to where we are in 2021, having an impeccable background and credit history in some ways is a, like a luxury, no? It's a privilege. I mean, you and I have talked about the iterative cycle that credit, you know, FICO scores and the rest of it, keep people of color oftentimes in this iterative cycle of, uh, disadvantage, right? And on the surface, it looks like, oh, well, it's all fair. And lots of comedians, uh, particularly lots of Black comedians joke about how, you know, they wish they had white man's credit, but <laughs> underlying the, all of that, you know, and I find them hilarious, but what's the best comedy belies truth, right? And yep. so we, we entitled today... <laughs> episode of these tales. These tales, the, all these air quotes, allegedly, but we, <laughs> but we know better. You know, things like credit score, things like pedigree, background schools, uh, upbringing, previous work experience. Historically, these have all been used to, you know, assess a potential mm -hmm. new employee to affirm. But uh, we would argue that those assessments have been somewhat flawed, and we're hoping that they change in several ways because breaking out of this hyper-focus on the very things that people of color happen to be discriminated against in those very areas that I just mentioned, uh, banking, we, we know um, home buying, access to some of the, the best schools because sometimes students have to take care of their families. So they have to work instead. And, you know, so the social economic dynamic creates this cabal of, well, I don't know if I want to use the word cabal, but this ball of uh, it's disadvantage. <laughs> it's all good to use cabal. You listen, <laughs> pivoting to what you're talking about. I think that coming up the way we did and the schools that we all attended, especially starting with the high school we went to, I was fortunate. I don't know how you felt, Maria, but I was fortunate that I was good at test taking. I understood the game that it was. So, like, for me, the SAT was a game. You know, and I knew the higher. Truthfully, I wasn't. If I look back at my GPA from high school, I wasn't, like, I was much better at being a student when I got to undergrad because I used to be quite active in sports. So it was like, for me, I was a fully well-rounded student, but I, I wasn't getting all A's all the time while we were in high school. But I knew that I said, okay, I got to do well on my SATs in order to get into a really good school. And then it's from really going college. to, mm -hmm. right, 
And then from going to those universities and the network and the connections you make there, coming out of to go into corporate. Like that's the that's the the road. Right? <laughs> that's no, the road no. that we're told, that's the road that we're given. And when we were in undergrad, they started as soon as we were on campus with credit cards. <laughs> I got my tush handed to me about managing. I learned the hard way about debt and managing credit early on. And back then, I believe they changed the rules now. Like, isn't there an age requirement? You can't just get a credit card the way they were giving them out. Oh, is there? Well, we both have to learn that the hard way. And even down to, you know, my own family, they'd say to me, well, you have a problem with spending money. And that's why you're in credit card debt. But even then I knew, well, what's the alternative? And you and I had talked about there came a point in our adulthood where we just tapped out on keeping up with the Joneses, right? But going back to there's oftentimes deeper, deeper uh, drivers for behavior and, you know, ended up getting a master's in, in this kind of thing. But we, my, one of my family members made a joke about it, but there was so much truth in it. I was trying to buy acceptance Okay. By what I wore. And how often is that the case in the black community? Like they talk about historically and, uh, you know, it, uh, this is not going to be all about race, but I thought it was truly fascinating. There's a story about how Sunday, looking your Sunday best, mm-hmm. that tradition amongst African-Americans came to prominence when slave masters wanted their, their servants, their slaves to look their their best and so they would it's so it was sort of a competitive thing look at how good i treat my people right and and, and to interject also depending on where you were in that org right and they're saying that org in that um, plantation which was an org so depending Mm -hmm. on your position in that org, depending on what kind of clothing you would be given or even considered to be allowed to go to that church precisely to, so stay on that precisely. So you see why I'm you picking up what I'm putting down. Hundreds of years later, in communities of color, we're still comparing ourselves. There's still like this mini caste system within ourselves in the community. How I look will determine where I fit on this caste system. So then, tell me again about overspending as a young person, not understanding why these forces were so strong against me. Until, you know, I grew much more mature. And, and what I love is, you know, this generation coming up, Gen Z, they, they're up against a whole different set of things where they, you know, are growing up with the internet and the global conversations and they're having, but I'm talking about back when, you know, I was a youngin a hundred years ago. Uh, that was very, very prominent for me. So, so this snowball, right? The snowball of being accepted in larger society, rising above this uh, implicit caste system that we have in the U.S. And, you know, you have Isabel Wilkerson who wrote, you know, Cast, literally that book. And it's so popular in 2020. Well, because we don't call it a caste system in the U.S., but here we are. Mm -hmm. And then fast forward that 
over expenditure on your credit card, starting from young, sets you back, impacts your credit. You learn it the hard way if you if you can catch up at all, right? And then fast forward, you want to get a nice shiny job in corporate, and that's being used against you. And that's fortunately, I was able to have family support. You know, I lived with moms in my 20s so that I could catch up and pay that off while I made an abysmal tiny amount in my first job. But fast forward. Mm -hmm. Um, being vetted by firms is a very interesting exercise. Well, right? let's, let's talk a little bit about this. Let's pull this together a little bit. Maria, you and I both know working in financials that there is a look, right? <laughs> There's, they have a strict code about what's acceptable. What's not, you have some firms that are even more conservative than others. There's the right bag, the right mm -hmm. attache case. Oh, hair cut uh -huh. or hair style? <laughs> yes, the right uh, the right hair. I was going to get to that. The right <laughs> hairstyle, the right suit, the right cut of suit, the right shoes. Stockings, no stockings. <laughs> I'm just going to. But there's, there is a dress code. There is a code, spoken and unspoken. And you either fall in line to get said job appointment or role. Or you just don't get it. Like some people can do great, but they didn't realize those, those, um, what do we call those? The soft skills. They don't, they yeah. don't, they don't know the unspoken rules. So like you coming from Ivy League, going into, and I, I get funny because I feel like interviews are like auditions, especially in Los Angeles. But when you go out for your audition, your interview. <laughs> You will then spend money on said credit card because you're investing in yourself, but you're also hoping I get that job and I can hopefully pay it back. Mm -hmm. You see, so it's almost like I've got to gamble on myself. I've, I have to look the part in order to to feel comfortable in that interview, feel myself. And some people don't even have that. So it, it's hard. And I, I know like for in certain programs in the summer internships, usually students in undergrad will learn those lessons about what's acceptable at the financials and what's not. Hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> I actually, in my old department, before I left that big firm, I used to deal with the interns and it was funny, but they had the code and they, they were from all different backgrounds and they understood the code. They, they really did. As far as dressing the part, they dressed and looked the part. But also part of it is too, like, what do you call it? Maybe self-fulfilling a little bit. They also wanted to be a part of the brand. Isn't that interesting? Like that was really, they wanted that on their CV. They understood what that currency, what it would get them, what it would buy them as far as in the future, as far mm -hmm. as to getting, you know, their career. So it was about belonging. And then I remember in New York, I don't know if you were, you were probably, no, you were definitely in LA by then, but in New York before I moved here, they, even the firms are aware of their brand, we know that, but then it, it trickles down to something very small, but I'll tell you this, I had a friend from tech reach out to me and said, hey, can you get me one of those bags? And I said, what bag? So the, <laughs> so the firms all started Basically, uh, getting the um, like Lands End. Oh um, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes, and I forget what they call them, but they're like the little gym duffels. 
little they're little tiny canvas gem devils and they have a canvas ribbon for the handles right and firms were in, embroidering their brands and their name on the the canvas ribbons that go around the bag so you so when interns would flood in for the summer off of the subway from grand central you would see you would know what firm they belong to because they had their bags. <laughs> I remember that. Oh, uh-huh. yeah. The colors are coming back to me now. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So that was it's super Allegedly. <laughs> right. Super preppy, super cute, super New England. Like, it's super, it's, you wouldn't even see it in L.A. But that was no. a big, that was like, uh, the kids were super proud to go, like, I got my bag. Yeah, allegedly and I had the, the, from- the green and blue ones. And, you yep. know, what firm that was. And the, yep. Mm-hmm. You know, so like the, so when I had someone from high school reach out to me and said, can you get me one of those bags? I was like, but you have to kind of go here to get the, I wasn't trying to be a jerk. <laughs> I was kind of like, you have to work here to get the bag. Like, it's not like there's a closet full of bags. But that goes back to the central theme of by hook or by crook, we're going to rise to a higher level of status in society. And that was one way. And I, I'm going to be honest with you. So I came out for my interview of my audition. I love that. And I saw where the firm was and it was in a skyscraper in LA. And I was like, yep, I, I need that in my life. Cause that would just make me, you know, a while back, but still it seemed like a dream come true to work at this, you know, the top of this building and have all these like panoramic views of the city yeah, and yeah. be working along and, and wearing the uniform, right? The corporate uniform, all of that together felt to me like I will have made it. Right. And what's interesting is fast forward. I, I did that. So I check. And now I'm seeing the other side of the visage, right? <laughs> the patina of, of what it is to be like this white glove elite corporate and recognizing, huh, as a person of color, especially a little over 10 years ago, and you know this at least, pedigree was pretty much everything. Mm-hmm. To get those top, top paying jobs, you know, with real cash much money. Thank you, Cardi. Real shmoney. <laughs> you needed to be in the network. You needed to have had not just an MBA, but your MBA needed to be from the right school mm. so that you could be a part of the right network so that then you would and on and on and on. And if you didn't have that, if you didn't get that memo, if you didn't have that information, then you fell into this bucket where I fell into and what I hope to, I tell mentees this, you know, all the programs that I'm a part of for early career and uh, young people of color, please believe that you have the capability to do more once you've, certainly once you've passed some certain markers in, in your life, but you may not still look like that archetype person in terms of the right accent, in terms of the right, you know, physical features. And, you know, we can go on with what those physical features are. Gender. Definitely. I can relate. What gender, what race, what, you know, sexuality that is. Um, The beauty, there's not much that people talk about coming out of 2020 being good. But I will say there are, there are certain things that came out of 2020 that 
I want to recognize. And one of them is definitely this awakening that we had as a nation and as a globe of, oh, wait, hold on. What, what did we think was a okay as a society? Mm -hmm. What? How come it felt a okay for you? And it was never, it did not feel a okay for a different part of society, not for a very long time. So there was an awakening while many of us had been exhausted already exhausted from knowing that at least did I really need to have an Ivy League degree to work at a firm that that same year they hired plenty of people not of color that didn't go to schools that I had ever heard of yet we were working the same role and year after year, I would hear about, well, if we increase our diversity, will we keep up our high standards of quality in these new employees? And I'm like, wait, what? Till this day, oftentimes, people of color have to be overqualified for a job. They have to either have already done it or have very, very shiny degrees or PhDs in order to appear squeaky clean enough for that audition? Oh, I will definitely say I can really, in multiple ways here, network, let me come back to that. <laughs> um, but as far as what you're talking about being old, overqualified, currently right now in corporate, you know, my current position, I literally did an assessment as I try to do every year and I go, okay, what are we doing with our career? Where, what could we be doing better? What could we, you know, improve upon? Where do we go? What do we want to do here? And in IT, you know, I had a moment and I was like, how many certifications am I going to get? <laughs> I had this moment, like, how many times are we going to do this? Right. And I literally had a conversation with a colleague who I'm very close to. I said, you know, we are good enough. We, we technically don't need more certs. We have the work experience. We are more than adequate for these particular roles. So it's like I was considering, okay, am I going to move into more advanced into product management? And there is in, in IT sometimes there is no roadmap the way it is in financial services as far as where how you get to the CEO, you know, how you get to COO. Technology is a little bit different. But I will say to you, I have now come to that place in my career where I know I'm more than adequate. I no longer do the, okay, there's another thing I need to get. I, I kind of go into those moments where I'm like actively pursuing and testing and getting and achieving and uh, obtaining those certs. And I had to sit back and say, you know what? I don't want to go to school anymore. I've done school. I've done this. I've done that. Now it's time to kind of walk in the door and walk into those interviews slash auditions like we know not cocky but yes you should want to hire me i am added value to your firm bring a lot to the table and it's coming from a place of power versus a place of oh i hope they take me it's different there i hope people get to that place of i am good enough i am pretty i'm pretty fly <laughs> you are pretty, <laughs> pretty flat. But network, it took me a long time to get here though, because I didn't come through, through the typical channels. So in financial services, I had to start from the bottom. 
like from the bottom. And a lot of people judged. I remember at that time, it wasn't the easiest. And it's not like, woe was me, it's a struggle. But at the time, I felt like compared to my peers from, from high school and undergrad, I was behind. And because I made a career change into financial services, I had no one that I was actively in the network. So even though I went to some of the right schooling, attended the right schools and got the right degrees, I didn't come through the farming system. So when I wanted to get into financial services, it was to the point that I would have had to be connected. I would have had to know someone to pull me over the wall. So if you don't do those summer internships, you don't go to the school of management or the business school at said university, you're not going to get into the, like the big top 10 firms that way. So I had to try another way. And it took a long time, but I worked my way up. But that networking, I got that reality check really hard about that. Cause just every door was closed and it was like, you could start here in the basement. And I did, I sucked it up, ego, everything. And I just had the attitude that I'm going to gain this too. <laughs> like I literally was like, I have one job and it is to take the right test, get the right uh, firm to sponsor me. And I will make this happen. Done. So being squeaky clean. <laughs> I think everybody sweats, right? When you, <laughs> when you have to do a background check. <laughs> And L.A., California has different rules on those. So talking about working from the bottom and then part of that made you even more savage than you were before. You know what I'm saying? Like you already had had like a strong academic background and a sports background at that. So you had some pretty like valuable uh, tools in your toolkit. But but I didn't believe in myself back then. I'm being completely I believed in myself to a point, but I was. There was a part of me being, I would not be telling the truth if back then I didn't feel like I was playing catch up. Well, you and I had different paths and I still felt like I had to play catch up because the game that I thought, well, first of all, you had a more um, animated take on (laughs) how to approach school and approach work, calling it the game, which a lot of times, right, we call it, the corporate game. I never bought into this business of the game. I was the one who always said, I hate politics and I'm not going to involve myself in it. I'm just going to do good work. So I went to that school and, and you know that honestly, I, when I talk to people, it's a little bit of a fallacy. You, you, we do not have the luxury of, and both you and I have Caribbean backgrounds. We've been taught a lot about hard work and we've never shied away from that. However, when I was in school, I didn't, until graduate school, I didn't sit there and try to build my network. I had a couple of friends, very small handful of friends, and I put my nose down and tried best I could to hold on to whatever piece piece of merit scholarship I got, right? I didn't involve myself in any extracurriculars that weren't, you know, I, I founded, you know, a couple of groups, but there's a lot more I wanted to do in undergrad, but I kept saying, no, I have to get in and get out. I have to get in and get out. I have to have get gr- good grades. And, and I took that approach to work. I wouldn't advise that now because that approach gets flagged. 
unfortunately, by managers and those around you of, oh, good, that person can be a lifer. Mm-hmm. They're not going to necessarily do what it takes to understand how to become invaluable for this firm. Mm-hmm. And I learned early on that you actually, you have to zigzag. It's almost okay. like, that's what I was gonna say. That appro- that, I'll tell you what that approach gets you. That approach gets you an abundance of feedback and then you start to lose your, well, if you're me, I'll just say, allegedly, once upon a time, I had a dream of my 10 year career, lost my confidence. I came in knowing, you know, I, I, I put in all the work. I had all the right, whatever you needed. I had it. I, I worked for firms where you didn't have one or two interviews and then you got the job. You got 20 and 30 interviews. If I still had them, I can show you the lists and lists of directors that I had to meet with in order to air quotes fit the corporate culture. And, you know, allegedly. But I learned later what you are beginning to talk about, which is the business of zigzagging. And it's not just about putting your head down and working really hard. And it's not, you know, you and I are, we're in one category of people of color. And I hear this a lot from a couple of other different categories of people of color that they've been taught the very same thing. Just put your head down, do good work, and you'll be recognized. It will all be taken care of. You'll be compensated for it. No, you won't. Allegedly. No, you won't. And part of why I finally ended up agreeing to do this podcast that you had been talking to me about, a couple of different people in my past had said, you know what you were born to do, right? And I was just like, ah, ha, ha, no. Part of the reason is because I didn't know the very thing that you said a couple of moments ago, which was I am enough. Like I put at a certain point and you know it, you know it in your heart. At a certain point, you've put in your dues. And I was waiting to get that external validation that I had put in my dues. And that external validation didn't come. But thankfully, I found it for myself eventually. And I found it from my network, folks like you and other strong, very, very impressive individuals that I am so grateful for and I'm thankful for all the time I surround myself with who taught me what it is to acknowledge that you're good enough. Can I get an amen out there? So to tie to that, I definitely will say that you have to also not just believe in your ability and your skill set and and what you can offer. You have Mm -hmm. to also, sometimes depending on your industry, you have to also have a little bit of the ability to pitch to pitch an idea, to actually have the gumption to pitch yourself, to put yourself up for that, to say, hey, I can definitely be of some use on that project. Oh, there's a new initiative coming out. I would love to participate. It's not brown nosing. Sometimes you can send an email to an executive or director and say, hey, I'd love to be of some help for that if, if it's still available. You kind of have to have the attitude of, if I don't try this, <laughs> it can only try and fail. You never know what people will actually pick up. 
Agreed. But I'm going to say <laughs> you said something really important, which is you have to pitch for yourself. So that's let's start there. I was always more than willing to be a team player and engage in the work. I wasn't always so good at taking enough credit. I wasn't advocating for myself. I think that's what, at least how I interpret you saying pitch for yourself. I interpret as advocating for yourself because it's a whole package deal. It's a putting forth yourself on projects and then recognizing your work and then being able to talk about yourself in, we call it humble brag, but it's true. And I'll tell you something else. Like culturally, I was never raised to do that, to brag or humble brag or otherwise. And I like to tell people, I keep a therapist (laughs) on the retainer, you know, and it was, she put it in really wonderful terms. She said, you know, in black and African-American culture, oftentimes we're taught to be community focused rather than individual focused or self-focused, but in advocating or pitching for yourself, you are recognizing yourself as part of a community, like you're a representative of a community and you're putting forth your value add to help further the organization. There's nothing wrong with that. Then it doesn't sound braggy, arrogant, none of those negative things that we sometimes hear when we start to pitch for ourselves or advocate. As you know, I'll tell you what is not typical, but I'm sure there are listeners and other women that can relate. I go hard when it goes to negotiating for salary and comp. And one of the main drivers. Yes. Yes. Is you're going to pay me. Like, like I, it goes back to group project work when you always have those people on the group who <laughs> you didn't pick or maybe you picked them. But they didn't they didn't uh, do the same amount of work as you. And you're not a hater, right? But you However, got eyeballs and you peeped game. You peeped. Okay, you're like, you're like, dude, you're gonna pay me. That's what that's how that goes. Oh, I want, I totally want that too. And it's not that you but you know your worth. So sometimes it is about saying, hey, I want to be handled in a certain way. I want to be dealt with in a certain way. I want to be treated a certain way. And yeah, I'm not the usual when it comes to not asking for more. I'm always like, what's going on with that? Can we do something better there? You know, when you're working extra hours, you know that you're doing putting in time. And I'm not talking about one year into the company, um, not qualified. We're talking been vetted, know stuff, have knowledge, you know, of industry best practices. You, they hired you for a reason. Mm -hmm. Pay me accordingly. So being paid accordingly, you know, oftentimes if, if you know, you put your stuff together and you came and you presented your best self and you're as squeaky clean as possible, then recognize, recognize yourself for it. And hold the fir- hold organizations. What you're talking about is just holding them accountable to do the job of recognizing contribution properly. And that's continuation for another day. 
I like it a lot. Marie, I like it a lot. like it. I love it. Well, we're going to wrap up and thank you for listening. Um, we'll see you in the next episode or we'll hear you in the next episode. You'll hear us in the hopefully. next episode. I know. This is all new, but... Um, I'm going to pop off in the next episode and hopefully I will be in. Right. <laughs> Thanks. Bye. Bye.